Welcome to Friends of George MacDonald, an ongoing podcast designed to introduce and discuss the author and his influence on the hosts and listeners and popular culture alike. Welcome to another edition of Making Friends with George MacDonald. Today, Dan, Dale, and I, James, are meeting together, and as follow-up to some of our discussion with previous episodes, we decided it would be a great idea to talk about some of the relationships that exist between some of the characters in McDonald's books, in particular, some of the friendships that exist. And today, we thought we would explore the friendship between Andrew the Cobbler and Donald Grant, in particular, the scene where they meet. It was decided that Dale will read the narration and I will read the parts of Donald and Dan will read the parts of the cobbler. We also decided to translate the dialogue into English. This is a delightful meeting and I think speaks volumes about how MacDonald might have entered into meeting a new person himself from the issue of trying to figure out who the person is by what they say. This begins coming off of Donald's walk from his home in the Highlands to the city. So he's taken a long walk from the Highlands to the city that is on the sea. There's a river. And he goes to a tavern to look for the box that has been sent from his home with his goods in it. On the walk along the way, one of his shoes failed. And so he's been carrying his shoes tied around his neck and walking in his bare feet for two and a half days or so, long walks. The man at the tavern is very rude to him because he's not wearing shoes, and he looks like someone who is lower than himself and makes big news of that. And Donald had asked about a room and decided that he wouldn't stay there due to the man's rudeness. And so McDonald ends one of our chapters with, he turned away and walked further along the street. At the end of the street, he came to a low arched gateway in the middle of a poor looking house. Within it sat a little bowed man cobbling diligently at a boot. The sun had left behind him in the West, a heap of golden refuse and cuttings of rose and purple which shone right in at the archway, and let him see to work. Here was the very man for Donal. A respectable shoemaker would have disdained to patch up the shoes he carried, especially as the owner was in so much need of them. It's a bonny night, he said. You may well say that, sir, replied the cobbler, without looking up for a somewhat critical stitch occupied him. It's a balmy night. That's rather a bonny word you put to it, returned Donald. There's a kind of air about the place I would hardly have thought balmy. But truth, it's not the fault of the night. You're right there also, returned the cobbler, and his use of the conjunction impressed Donald as indicating a tendency to continuity of thought. But the weather has to do with the smell, with the more or less of it, that is. It comes from a tannery not far from here, and it's not a bad smell to those who are used to it, but you would hardly believe me, sir but I can smell the clover through it all. I may be quite prejudiced in favor of the place, seeing but for 
the tan pits, I couldn't well drive my trade. But sitting here from morning to night, I get a kind of habit of looking out for my blessings, to recognize an old blessings almost better than a new one. A pair of old shoes, well cobbled, are rather better than a pair of new ones. They are that, said Donal, but I just do not see how your simile applies. Isn't getting a pair of old, well-known shoes that won't nip your feet nor let the water in like coming to know a blessing you've been having for months, maybe years, only you didn't know it for one. It's a sudden glorification of the old shoes. As he spoke, the cobbler lifted a little wizened face and a pair of twinkling eyes to those of the student, revealing a soul as original as his own. He was one of the inwardly inseparable, inwardly far-divided of Christian philosophers, among whom individuality as well as patience is free to work its perfect work. I'm going to interject something there. That's a phrase that I highlighted about that philosopher and think that if you tend to that, you're in deep trouble with most people. <laughs> MacDonald goes on. In the glance, Donald saw a ripe soul looking out of its tent door, ready to rush into the sunshine of the new life. He stood for a moment lost in eternal regard of the man he seemed to have known him for ages. The cobbler looked up again. He'll be wanting a job in my line, I'm thinking, with a kindly nod toward Donald's shoeless feet. Small doubt, returned Donald. I had scarce started, but it was too far to go back when the sole of a shoe came off and I had to tramp on with both of my own. And I'll bet you thank the Lord when the soul came off that you've been brought up with the soles of your own as tough as any leather and fit for wayfaring. To tell the truth, answered Donald, I have so many things to be thankful for. It's a small wonder I forget many of them. But now, and I thank you for the exhortation, the Lord's name be praised, that he gave me feet fit for going upon. He took his shoes from his back and, untying the string that bound them, presented the ailing one to the cobbler. That's what we may call death, remarked the cobbler as he regarded the sorely invalid shoe. Aye, death it is, answered Donal. It's a sore divorce of soul and body. Quite an old joke by now, said the cobbler, but the fun of a thing doesn't wear out any more than the poetry or the truth of it. Who will say there is no providence in the loss of my shoe sole, remarked Donald to himself. Here I am with a friend already. The cobbler was submitting the shoes, first the sickly one, now the sound one, to a thorough scrutiny. You do not think them worth mending, I doubt, said Donald with a touch of anxiety in his tone. I never thought that of any where the leather would hold the stitch, replied the cobbler. But sometimes I confess I'm just a bit troubled to know how to charge for the work, for it's not barely to be considered the time it'll take me to patch them up, but whether the wearer is likely to get enough out of them to make it worth their while paying for all of my time spent. I can't take more from them than it'll be worth to them. You see, the worse the shoe, the more time they take to mend them worth anything at all. Surely you ought to be paid in proportion to your labor. But in that case, I would sometimes have to say to a poor body that hadn't another pair in the world that that some solitary pair of shoes wasn't worth mending, and that might be a heartbreak and sore feet besides to such as weren't like yourself, sir, born well shod. But how make you a living that way, suggested Donald. Heavens, the master of the trade, will see to my wages, 
And who may he be? asked Donal, well foreseeing the answer. He was never a cobbler himself, but he was once a carpenter. And now he's lifted up to be head of all the trades, cobblers and all. And there's just one thing he can't stand, and that's close dealing. He stopped, but Donald held his peace, waiting. And he went on. To them that make least, for good reasons, by their neighbor, he gives the best wages when they go home. Them that can make all they can, he says to them, you helped yourself, help away. You have your reward. Don't come near me, for I can't stand you. But about those shoes of yours, I've had a hard job telling. They're well enough worth the doing I can for. But tomorrow's Sunday, and what have you to put on? Nothing until my luggage comes, and that, I doubt, will not be before Monday, or maybe the day after. And you won't be able to go to church without shoes? I'm in no particular about going to the church, but if I wanted to go, or if I thought I was bound to go, do you think I would bite at home because I had not shoes to go in? Would I fancy the Lord affronted with the bare feet he had made me himself? Cobbler caught up the worst shoe and began upon it at once. You shall have it, sir, and if I sit all night at it, one will do till Monday. You will have it before church time, but you must come into the house to get it, for the folks would be shocked to see me working on the Sabbath day. They don't understand that the master works Sundays and Saturdays, and his father, too. You do not think, then, that there's anything wrong with mending a pair of shoes on the Sabbath day? Wrong in obeying my master, whose is the day as well as all the days. They would fain take it from the Son of Man, who's the Lord of it, but they can't. Have that to learn yet, and rather than learn it, I would suffer the pains of hell, anything rather than think less of him whom my soul loveth. He looked up over the old shoe with eyes that flashed. But then excuse me, said Donal. Why should not ye hold your face to it and work openly in the name of God? Long may it be so with you, sir, but remember we're told neither to do our good works before men or to be seen of them, nor yet to cast our pearls before swine. I count cobbling your shoes, sir, a far better work than going to the church, and I wouldn't have it seen of men. If I were working for fear of my own starving, it would be another thing. This last Donald did not understand, but learned afterwards that the cobbler meant, the day being for rest, the next duty to helping another was to rest himself. To work for fear of starving would be to distrust the father and act as if man lived by bread alone. When I think of it, Cobbler resumed after a pause, being Sunday, I'll bring them home to you where you like, to save you having to come for them looking it, as if you'd got stuck in a bog the night before. Where will you be? That's when I would fain have you tell me, answered Donal. I had thought to lodge at Morven Arms, but there was something I didn't like about the landlord. Can't you tell me some decent, clean kind of place where they would give me a bed and a room to myself? and not charge me more than I could pay well for their trouble? As you ask, I'm free to answer. That will my wife do for you, if you can stand the smell of the leather. Heavens, what's that? Nothing. And I'm more obliged to you than I can tell. We have a wee room, said the cobbler, at the service of any decent wayfaring man that can put up with our ways. And for payment, you can pay what you think it's worth to yourself. We're never very particular about the amount. I take your offer with thankfulness, answered Donal. Well, go in at that door just before you, and you'll see the good wife. There's no one else to see. 
I would go with you myself, but you see, I can't with the shoe of yours to turn into a Sunday one. Kind of a conversion, isn't it now? Donald went to the door indicated. It stood wide open, for while the cobbler sat outside at his work, his wife would never shut the door. He knocked, but there came no answer. That's probably a good time to stop. They've met. Go so, Dale, what was it about this interaction in this meeting that made you want to talk about it today? Well, I think it's a delightful meet, and especially following the one that he had with, uh, let's see, what was the other guy's name? His last name is Glum. <laughs> <laughs> the landlord's name is Glum? Yeah, his last name is Glum. And uh, and he was. So there's a there's a point where Donald says, I was thinking to put up with you for the night if you could accommodate me at a reasonable rate. Well, I don't know, replied Glum, hesitating with his back to him between unwillingness to lose a penny and resentment at the supposed bandage, which was indeed nothing but humor. What would you call reasonable? And they go on a bit more. And he argues with him a little bit. And then he says, you're a queer customer, said the man. Donald answers him. I'm not so queer, but I have a kit coming by the carrier directed to the Morvan arms. It'll be here in time, doubtless. And the landlord remarks, well, we'll see if it comes. And Donald says, well, the worst of it is I can't well show myself wanting shoes. I have to, I have a pair in my kit and another upon my back, but none for my feet. And the guy says, well, there's suitors all over the place and he'll see where it's going to go from. And the man continues on about, be, him being a tramp and things like that. And Donald right. said, I'm thinking you wouldn't wear much of it. Let's see. Well, before he said, Donald gave a laugh. Those who are content with what they are have the less concern about what they seem. The ambitious like to be taken for more than they are and may well be annoyed when they are taken for less. So the guy goes on and it's a nasty encounter. He walks yeah. down the road and, and he, sees the cobbler shop and they have this delightful interaction. Yeah. The contrasting is, is just delightful the way that McDonald uses that. Yeah. In both cases, Donald tries, you know, a short sentence or two, a remark or two as sort of a test to see how it will be responded to. Yeah. And in the, and in the case with the landlord, Donald pretty rapidly starts sorting out that he's on a different page than the landlord a different page in how he's trying to approach life and transactions with his fellow man. Right. But then, but then when he meets Andrew, the cobbler, again, it starts with a, a, a quick comment back and forth, but Donald rapidly picks up hope that this is somebody he can talk to in his, and, and be on page with. Right. There's a kindredness between the cobbler and the shepherd boy who's gone to find his way in the big city. And there's not one with the man who's running the inn, who maybe has never stepped out of the city. We don't know that, but maybe his life is in the inn, serving people and taking care of things and trying to make more money. And the cobbler's the opposite of that, isn't he? He wants to make sure that Donald will get value for the work that he does so he can wear his shoes for a long time, whether he gets paid for the time that he does it or not. Mm -hmm. Really um, 
in that exchange where Donald and the caller discussed the value of the shoes and the value of the caller's work on the shoes is one of the many instances, I think, in George MacDonald's novels, perhaps it's even in, in most novels, where there is some sort of discussion about how we make transactions with each other, business transactions in particular is what I'm referring to here, and about the way people of the world approach it versus people uh, trying to follow Christ approach it. And it's interesting that I'm sure Donald is very grateful to um, the cobbler's approach to it, but Donald seems a little surprised by the, the degree to which the cobbler is willing to do all he can to help Donald and make sure Donald gets value out of the work even if Donald ends up getting more value out of the work than the cobbler himself does. A lot of it is just the opposing worldview of I'm thinking of myself and I'm thinking of others. Mm -hmm. So he puts them back to back so that there's an obvious disparity between the two different worldviews. And both Donald and the suitor have an equal and opposite concern that do right, the right thing for the other guy. Mm -hmm. And in this case, Donald also gets a room and another friend in Dory, Andrew's wife. Pretty interesting. And I believe towards the end of this meeting, he also meets their granddaughter, who, who has a, quite a role in this novel as it goes along. So part of those interactions, I think, are an encouragement to us as to how we interact with others as well. It's a gentle reminder and an encouragement to do better than we ought to do yeah right. I, believe, I believe it was in the first episode i expressed that that was one of the first things that got me hooked on mcdonald was that i really appreciated how his stories his characters and the relationships in the stories gave me more of a practical model on how to to live in the way that i internally believe i ought to live but somehow lack the imagination to always know exactly how to put it into practice Imagination or will or both? Well, it's certainly some of both. I, <laughs> I certainly some won't say I'm practice. not lacking in will. Yes. What's that, Dan? Some of it's just practice. The more we do, the more it becomes apparent. Mm -hmm. And the less uh, we do, the less apparent it is. Yeah, I like the little interaction with Donald and Andrew when Donald says, but how can you make a living that way? And he's answered, hoots. You know, I don't know. What does that mean in the Scots? It's like, how could you say such a thing? That's the master funny. of the trades sees to my wages. Yep. You know, he's not looking at if he has all that he possibly needs to have enough grain for the porridge the next day. If he can do the right thing by the other fellow with his, in this case, with his shoes. That's a, it's a good place to be. Just in reading the autobiography or the biography of, uh, George MacDonald by his son, Grayville. There was a place in there where his son, Grayville, says that his oldest sister at one point, when they were having financial issues, told the mother and father that she wasn't hungry. She didn't eat, need to eat anything so that the other kids would get enough to eat that day. She knew they didn't have enough money. And when the mother, when uh, Mrs. MacDonald went out for something, she had one sovereign in her pocketbook and lost it on the way to get what they needed and didn't have anything to buy any food for them that day. 
And the other thing that happened in there that has we've seen this happen in some of the other novels as well, is when they got back home later that night, somebody came by with a check that somebody had sent to them for 30 pounds. <laughs> I've had that happen before, things like that. Yep. In some ways, well, in all ways, I think all the trials are are blessings. We, that's one thing we should continually see is that they are blessings. Can be. Well, they are. Because all things are working together for good. Donald's feet were sore as all get out from walking barefooted. How we respond to them makes a difference. Right. And that's, well, I see that in my work all the time with, with teenagers. They can have very similar circumstances, but their responses to it often uh, impact how their life's going to go for the next little stretch. That response can be the difference between a blessing and a curse, can't it? Yes, very much. Not, yeah, I'm looking at it from the view of that we know all things are working together for good. And McDonald knew that. As difficult as the times were and the illnesses he had and his children and friends and issues with housing and so on and so forth. And with this, with the, the challenges that faced Donald during the course of this book, that faced Gibby in the book before when Donald is, is uh, introduced initially. They see that, and he works that out in the end to, to try to show that that's the case so that along the way, it's encouraging one to say, like Andrew does, the master of the trade will see to my wages. I'm not worried about the circumstances or the tyranny of this particular at this moment. And Donald, in the same way, didn't want to support the guy that was cruel to him by giving him however much he was going to charge him for a room. He didn't want to support that guy. Or at least not be in a position of continual conflict with the guy. I like how when Donald first meets Andrew the Cobbler, and in their first couple of sentences of interaction, he starts wondering if this can be somebody who might be a friend, is when they're just talking about it being a good evening. And... I really enjoy, you know, uh, he, he says, good evening. And um, the caller says, uh, you may well make the remark. It's a nice bonny night. And uh, Donald replies by saying, well, bonny is an interesting word to put to it when there's such a foul smell <laughs> in the air. And then the cobbler goes on to explain that even though he lives right near the tannery that puts off such such a fine smell, he's learned to ignore it and still smell some of the pleasant uh, smells that are are around from uh, nature nearby. And and that's one of the things that perks Donald up as as he's trying to judge this man. The fact that the color can see past this foul thing right next to him and still see the blessings that are around him. Yeah, it's like uh, something that I, I can remember right now growing up around Akron, Ohio in the 50s and into the 60s. The tire plants were going constantly there. When you went in there, it smelled bad. The burning tire odors and the air was horrible. These enormous smokestacks were pitching out burnt coal, black coal, and they were burning the tire remnants. It was just solid black soot. And it just went up in the air. The smokestacks were very short. It went out and it went out and around. And what I remember 
is when we drove into Akron from out on the edges where we lived, in the spring, a lot of times people would paint their houses. And you'd see these houses that were painted this beautiful blue, light green, white, yellow, and so on. And within a month or two, they had this black patina over them that was that coal dust and tire black that has settled on all of it, that you could see this remnant. And yet people planted beautiful flowers and had shrubs with beautiful flowers in the front that still thrived within that, trying to show the beauty of it in the midst of industrial pollutions. <laughs> that's, all, that's all it was. And this is similar. They're, they're speaking the terms here of the, of the odor. Uh, but later, when he's in the tower, where his home will be at the castle, he looks out and he can see the areas where they're uh, taking the stuff and, and bleaching it. And the grass is all dead and stuff from it all being bleached along as the river flows through. And they're putting that, all that stuff into the river that would go out into the ocean. And, but yet he still sees the beauty of all the things that are around that and within that. And that there's labor for people. And in George's childhood in Huntley, there were bleach fields. I think you're right. My two worst smelling jobs ever was the chicken plant oh. and a hog and a hog farm, which was by far the worst. Um, but they both smelled like rent. So they smelled like what? Like my rent check. <laughs> yes. Uh, what we'll put up with for mighty dollar. I helped a neighbor milk cows and he brought him into the milking parlor and he had these troughs that were back where they stood. The front end of them was at the feeding trough and the back end was at the trough where the manure went. And when we were done, he'd run this little conveyor belt and push all the manure into this trough and it would run out through another conveyor belt and empty into his manure spreader. Then we'd take it and spread it around. That was a uh, poignant <laughs> scent. <laughs> but again, then you have manure, then you have crops. Exactly. Uh, I collected he used manure, all of them. I collected yeah. manure in a five-gallon bucket for the garden um, and was glad to have it. You bet. Because that you was bet. vegetables eventually. Yeah. It's good. that I think McDonald endeavors to encourage people to think beyond the tyranny of themselves. That's an ongoing thing with him, with the unspoken sermons and with these things in the novels, the characters that he, he builds, and some who are really trying to discover and solve the riddles, I guess, if you'd say it that way, or solve their issues and continue, and others that just give in to where they're at. I think we had mentioned uh, prior to uh, starting recording. It's also one of his more gothic novels. Yeah, maybe we could talk a bit about the novel itself here. It is a gothic novel. Maybe you can add some some words about why you why you would classify it that. But certainly, it features a, a, a castle. It features some dark nighttime scenes. It's it features the idea, at least, of ghosts or hauntings. What other elements would you say puts it in the realm of a gothic novel? The villain definitely is uh, a very gothic type. And the ending of the novel is certainly in keeping with the gothic tradition. Um, so I don't want to give that away for those who haven't read it. 
Um, it's interesting in George because he oscillates between fantasy and realism um, and the Gothic. And if you go into the short stories, there's some more blatantly Gothic things there, werewolves and such, uh, the cruel painter. Boy, but the cruel the cruel painter is hard to beat as a story. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Very um, gothic and certainly one of the most funny of George's stories. <laughs> My favorite of his real realistic, my favorite of his not fairy tale short stories is in Fantasties, is Cosmo and the Mirror, um, which is certainly gothic. So there is a stretch of that. He also mentions in some of his novels reading Poe. There is as far as literary content or style. Yeah, I frequently, when I first started reading MacDonald and had read a few novels, I, I frequently um, guessed that there was some influence from Poe or at least, if not directly from Poe, some influence just from their contemporary circumstances, since their lives overran each other. But yeah, when I came across actual references to Poe, it did not surprise me at all. And George is great for a good literary reference. There's tons of people that I wouldn't know about had I not read George, and George Fox being one of them. Um, that he'll just drop in lines or references to. So he's a great starting point for discovering some of these other people as well, um, or for better understanding them. The other one that I was thinking about that is also interesting in the same book is when he meets Kate Graham. Sure, that could be an interesting one to talk about. Oh, we have another character meet a little later in Donald Grant, when Donald meets a brother and a sister in a garden that's near the castle where he's taken up his abode and teaching responsibilities. It's a new area for him. It's a closed off walkway and he's lying in the grass reading and thinking and looking at the sky when the brother comes up and they talk for a few minutes. And when they do, the brother mentions that his sister might be more keen on what Donald is trying to say philosophically and so on, and that they should meet. They walk on and she comes along and he stands up or continues standing. And it goes on like this bonnet in hand. He advanced to meet Kate Graham. She held out to him a well-shaped, good-sized hand, not ignorant of work, capable indeed of milking a cow to the cow's satisfaction. Then he saw that her chin was strong and her hair, her dark hair, not too tidy, that she was rather tall and slenderly conceived, though plumply carried out. Her light approach pleased him. He liked the way her foot pressed the grass. If Donald loved anything in the green world, it was that neither roses nor hollyhocks nor even sweet peas, but the grass that is trodden underfoot that springs in all waste places and has so often to be glad of the dews of heaven to heal the hot cut of the scythe. He had long observed the notion of anything in the vegetable kingdom being without some sense of life, without pleasure and pain also in mild form and degree. He took her hand and felt in it a safe one, a safe, comfortable hand. My brother told me he had brought you, she said. I am glad to see you. 
You are very kind, said Donald. How did either of you know of my existence? A few minutes back, I was not aware of yours. Was it a rude utterance? He was silent a moment with the silence that promises speech, then added, has it ever struck you how many born friends there are in the world who never meet, persons to love each other at first sight, but who never in this world have that sight? No, returned Miss Graham with a merrier laugh than quite responded to the remark. I certainly never had such a thought. I take the people that come and never think of those who do not. But of course, it must be so. To be in the world is to have a great many brothers and sisters you do not know, said Donald. My mother told me, she rejoined, of a man who had so many wives and children that his son, whom she had met, positively did not know all his brothers and sisters. I suspect, said Donald, we have to know our brothers and sisters. She says, I do not understand. We have ever gotten to feel a man is our brother the moment we see him, pursued Donald, enhancing his former remark. That sounds alarming, said Miss Graham with another laugh. My little heart feels not large enough to receive so many. The worst of it is, continued Donald, who once started was not ready to draw rein, that those who chiefly advocate the extension of the family bonds begin by loving their own immediate relations less than anybody else. Extension with them means slackening, as if anyone could learn to love more by loving less or go on to do better without doing well. He who loves his own little will not love others much. But how can we love those who are nothing to us, objected Miss Graham. That would be impossible. The family relations are for the sake of developing a love rooted in a far deeper, though less recognized relation. But I beg your pardon, Miss Graham. Little Davy alone is my pupil, and I forget myself. I am very glad to listen to you, returned Miss Graham. I cannot say I am prepared to agree with you, but it is something in this out-of-the-way corner to hear talk from which it is even worthwhile to differ. Ah, you can have that here if you will. Indeed. I mean talk from which you would probably differ. There is an old man in the town who can talk better than ever I heard man before. But he is a poor man with a despised handicraft, and none heed him. No community recognizes its great men till they are gone. He's talking about Andrew coming, the suitor, at that point. That kind of brings it around. Mm -hmm. And speaking of greatness, then she goes on and says, Where's the use then of being great, said Miss Graham. To be great, answered Donald to which the desire to be known of men is altogether destructive. To be great is to seem little in the eyes of men. Miss Graham did not answer. She was not accustomed to consider things seriously. That's an interesting meeting because it contrasts with the other two that we talked about. Here he's met somebody who he's able to have a conversation with. And it's reasonably pleasant, but she's not quite on the same page as him, is she? No. But she doesn't seem to be on an opposing page like the landlord was. No, he was confrontational and cantankerous. Of course, through the novel, that relationship with Kate expands. Yeah, I think it does. And he switches back when she's not answering 
and coming along as was the opposite with the suitor. They, they dug deeper with each other and they continued to sound out those depths. And that continues also through the book. She doesn't do that. So he says, what a lovely garden this is, remarked Donald after the sequent pause. I have never seen anything like it. It is very old-fashioned, she returned. Do you not find it very stiff and formal? Stately and precise, I would rather say. I do not mean I can help liking it in a way, she says. Who could help liking it that took his feeling from the garden itself, not from what people said about it? She says, you cannot say it is like nature. And his next comment here is another one that I highlighted because it's one that I like. He says, yes, it is very like human nature. Man ought to learn of nature, but not to imitate nature. His work is through the forms that nature gives him to express the idea or feeling that is in him. That is far more likely to produce things in harmony with nature than the attempt to imitate nature upon the small human scale. Mm, that's very profound. And I think that's how McDonald worked, the way he brings nature in to everything. He's bringing it in here now, just like he did smelling the clover through the tannery stink. Interesting. And Miss Graham's response is, you are too much of a philosopher for me. I dare say you were quite right, but I have never read anything about art and cannot follow you. He makes another comment, and MacDonald says of her, this too was beyond Miss Graham. The silence fell again, and Donald let it lie, waiting for her to break it this time. So he's happy to talk with her, but also willing to sort of meet her where she's at to, to go as far as she can and not press her. Yeah, yeah, not to be offensive, but to know when to stop. What do you think it would have been like for someone to meet George MacDonald for the first time? I think your comment earlier that this approach must have been what MacDonald's own approach was, I think is probably true. My guess is if George and I met, he would probe me with a few comments and questions and see how I responded to decide where he went next. And I, I suppose that's how most anybody approaches a conversation. But one of the particular things, I guess, about McDonald is he would be looking for depth rather than the nature of my response. Whereas I think many people today are looking for, are you on my side or not? I think McDonald is more are you somebody I can talk to in depth or not? In both cases of these meetups, all three of the cases, he uses, Donald uses what is there at hand to begin the conversation, his shoes, his kit that he's waiting for, and the garden that they're in. The air. And then he, he proceeds from there. He's using a common thread. He's not going into tell them about his life as a shepherd on the side of the hill, living outside with the sheep, although that does come up in this story frequently as yeah. it goes along, his, his background. Right. But he doesn't impose something else on them. He takes them where they're at, where he's at at that point, and is in that moment speaking to them. 
How about you, Dan? Do you have an imagined conversation with George McDonald? Not outside of thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That would certainly be one of my first comments. How many people do you meet that the first thing you say to them is thank you, though? Depends on what they're doing. If they're reaching out to others, if they're helping others, I'm likely to start with that. Sure. Sure. I love meetups with people, myself. I can start a conversation with just about anybody. My middle daughter is that way. And her husband is very reserved. I remember one time we visited them in Kansas City when he was working on his PhD. And we went to this great barbecue place, Kansas City Barbecue, man. And we went into this place to order something. It was very crowded. We were going to get something to go. And we were sitting there and he was sitting next to me and there were these people standing around and I started talking to everybody and we kept this conversation going around and through until we got our food. We talked about the food. We talked about their a child or this or that or something else. And we walked out the door. Russ didn't say a word. We walked out the door and he said, man, you're just like Brittany. And then he went, wait a minute, maybe she's just like you. I have a hard time when they're when answers are one word answers for very long. I think that's one of the differences in the George conversations too. If it's um, a good character, then the conversations quickly become real. So they well, become, they become uh, more to the meat. If it's the a, other one in this story that precedes the more of an arms and the rest on the walk is when he meets the minister of the local church. And the guy is very rude to him based on how he looks and things like that. And then judgmental of him and what he says. And later when he starts teaching Davy and meets his cousin, how do you say her name? Arctura. Arctura. Yeah. Is that correct? meets her, well, she's friends with the minister's daughter and has been, McDonald has it, that she's been brainwashing Artura all the time to this kind of theology and stuff that is really anathema for Donald. And when he meets her, at, when he starts teaching his student about the beginning of how to read the Bible, basically, he talks about how do things begin and where does something begin? Do you begin with the beginning or do you begin with the end kind of a thing? And Arctura is listening and is very confused and very concerned about it and confronts him about it. And he's, Donald says, well, if you would prefer, you can always be here when I'm going to teach him. And, of course, he's trying to draw her into learning something that she doesn't know also. And so the next time they meet, this other woman is it Carmichael? Miss Carmichael comes with her and Donald starts doing his teaching and Miss Carmichael begins to comment and he confronts her about it flat out. I did not invite you to be here. And she says, I have a right to say what I am because I am the daughter of the local parson. He says, you were not invited here. She says, I will go tell my father about this. And then she sends him a note 
this nasty letter, and he writes back and he just says, you were not invited. I am not going to answer your questions. And that's it. Very, very firm about that because he knows what she's trying to do with Arctur and the others. And that ends up being quite a thread in this story as well. well. Those are interesting meetings as well. I guess the other big meeting in that novel is between Donald and Lord Morvan. And Donald has to approach that relationship quite cautiously because it's his employer but he can, and he can also tell that uh, Lord Morvan is somebody who has a number of life problems, shall we say? And through the course, well, of the novel, uh, it becomes quite clear that he has a number of addictions, not just to alcohol, but also to drugs, probably opium. And there's an exchange between those two. Uh, Lord Morvan is trying to get to know. Donald a bit better. He invites him into, uh, I can't remember if it's a study or anyway, some kind of private room and offers him a drink. And Donald says he doesn't drink and there's some exchange. And Lord Morvan tells him that uh, basically Donald doesn't know what he's missing and that, and there's some discussion about uh, Lord Morvan ends up saying that, you know, well, it's an acquired taste and, um, you should put some effort into acquiring it because it's really enjoyable. And there's a great quote there, which I remember, which is along the lines of Donald responding that an acquired taste is sometimes a good thing, but an acquired appetite is never a good thing. Good stuff. Here I found the exact quote. Lord Morvan says, don't you think it's a pity to limit the scope of life by too much self-denial? Every new or acquired taste is a gain to the being. And Donald replies, I suspect, however, that every new appetite is only a loss. How about that? That's some real wisdom there. You got that right. I have found people's reactions over the years to letting them know that you don't want to drink is always kind of interesting. Yeah. You either get people who respond in that way, who uh, you don't know what you're missing, or you get people who become paranoid about what they're imbibing themselves and whether or not it's okay to do it around you. Hmm. Yes, I've had both responses, but most often I just have a cordial response. And often when I'm on business trips, uh, if uh, sometimes I'll find myself at a, a dinner with 10, 20 people, and it'll be... You know, at the beginning of the meals, the waiters going around taking orders for drinks. And um, I've noticed quite often when I indicate that I uh, am not wanting a drink, that a couple other people remaining at the table will look relieved and decide mm -hmm. not to order a drink. Here's a quote that he makes about Arctura. She was in sore and sad earnest to believe as she was told she must believe. Therefore, instead of beginning to do what Jesus Christ said, she tried hard to imagine herself one of the chosen, tried hard to believe herself the chief of sinners. That goes a little bit with what you're saying. People wanting to go with the flow mm -hmm. of, well, I'll have to get a drink so that I feel like I belong here. And then your act 
gives them permission to do what they know to be the right thing in that case. So uh, interactions or early interactions when he's teaching Davy in the room, Arturo comes into the room, which she had never done before, and she sees the boy. And Donald is in a nook. She doesn't know that he's there. And she starts looking at what he's reading and talking to him a little bit. And then by degrees, her voice grew a little louder. And by and by, these words reached Donald. You know, Davy, dear, every sin, whatever it is, deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And if it had not been that Jesus Christ gave himself to turn away his anger and satisfy his justice by bearing the punishment for us, God would send us all to the place of misery forever and ever. It is for this sake, not for ours, that he pardoned us. She had not yet ceased when Donald rose in the wrath of love and came out into the room. Lady Artura, he said, I dare not sit still and hear such false things uttered against the blessed God. She says, Mr. Grant, you forget yourself. He says, I'm very willing to do that, my lady, answered Donald, but I must not forget the honor of my God. If you were a heathen woman, I might think whether the hour was come for enlightening you further, but to hear one who has had the Bible in her hands from her childhood say such things about the God who made her and sent his son to save her without answering a word for him would be cowardly. That's how he confronts her in this case. What do you know about such things? What gives you the right to speak, said Lady Arturo. Her pride strength was already beginning to desert her. I had a Christian mother, answered Donald. Have her yet, thank God, who taught me to love nothing but the truth. I have studied the Bible from my childhood, often whole days together, when I was out with the cattle or the sheep. And I have tried to do what the Lord tells me from nearly the earliest time I can remember. Therefore, I am able to set to my seal that God is true, that he is light, that there is no darkness or unfairness or selfishness in him. I love God with my whole heart and soul, my lady. Arctura tried to say she loved him so, but her conscience interfered and she could not. That's a pretty good way to confront something when it needs done just the right amount of boldness also remaining polite while being so bold yeah well the next statement is telling because he says i don't say you don't love him donald went on but how you can love him and believe such things of him i don't understand Whoever taught them first was a terrible liar against God, who was lovelier than all the imaginations of all his creatures can think. Mm. And she went out of the room trembling from head to foot. At the door, she turned and called Davy. The boy looked up in his tutor's face, mutually asking if he should obey her. Go, said Donald. In less than a minute, he came back, his eyes full of tear. Archie says she is going to tell Papa. Is it true, Mr. Grant, that you are a dangerous man? I do not believe it, though you do carry such a big knife. (laughs) 
uh, to be a simple little boy, huh? Well, that's sort of what he's working on us to be, isn't it? To be childlike. It's interesting how he uses children in the books too. That's something we didn't mention on the one we, when we talking about characters or children and the roles that they play. Now we did mention a little bit, I guess. Why don't you finish this off with a couple good quotes, Dan? Those who are content with what they are have the less concern about what they seem. These are from Donald Grant. The beauty of love is that it does not take care of itself, but of the person loved. And this one is an often quoted one. To have what we want is riches, but to be able to do without his power. There's some beautiful stuff, Donald Grant. That there is. You want to slip in another quote or two, Dale? Oh, I, I said a lot. I'll say this, and that is that I'm enjoying you guys and trying to figure all this out. I hope maybe our listeners will hear the process as we go along. You never know where things are going to go. Sure. The I think along the wayside in this, we've had some pools of living water and other times when our the soles of our shoe has come off a little bit. <laughs> yep. I'm still waiting for you to sing. That's going to tie it all together. No, it's not going to tie it together. That would mean nobody would ever listen to anything again. <clears throat> That's well, funny. With all with all the music, people would say, well, why don't you join the choir? I said, I don't sing. I don't sing. I write for voice. I accompany voice. I accompany choirs. I don't sing. <laughs> Well, you know what it says in the Bible, make a joyful noise. It doesn't say oh. it has to be good, just joyful. Oh, yeah. So we may have other episodes like this in the future where we discuss uh, some relationships. And, uh, of course, we'll keep experimenting with other types of episodes as well, with interviews and uh, other types of focuses. So thanks for joining us. And please give us comments and direction on how we can uh, best fill our time with things that have interest to you. And vote for Dale singing. We want to thank everyone for joining us for this installment of Making Friends with George McDonald. Please join us next time where we'll discuss all things GM. Talk to you then. Bye.